So as we discussed last, Washington has rejoined with the British in their beginning stages of the war against the French and their Indian allies. He has joined up with General John Forbes. And although they get along at first, they quickly begin to clash over routes in order to take Fort Duquesne, which is Pittsburgh, folks. It is Pittsburgh. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Yo, What the Hell, a smorgasbord, if you will, of topics that uh, we find interesting. And uh, this week, we are doing part two of our look on G-dubs. I am your host, Bravo, and I am joined, as ever, by my stalwart co-host. I don't know if that's the right word. Uh... But uh, fuck it, we're doing it live, and uh, yeah, whiskey. Why don't you take it away, sir? Uh, hello, I am our resident scholar, um, and we're here today to discuss George Washington some more for the beginning of the umpteenth time. That is the sound of a tobacco pipe, because I'm a scholar. Remember that, folks. So. Um, Before we get into Washington, though, I would like us to do our week. So let's talk about our weeks because that is now customary. And that's what we do here, damn it. That is true. How was yours, Uh, sir? So as of recording this, uh, I am like 36 hours post my first vaccine for the I got I got the microchip. I got the I got the Bluetooth. No, I got the Wi-Fi version, uh, and the other one is Bluetooth. Um, so yeah, that is that is it. Um, been playing a whole lot of Monster Hunter, kind of neglecting some other aspects of my life in that, namely school, because that's all I got going on. Um, but yeah, I'm writing a final essay uh, for a class, and then. Doing a bunch of reading. Um, I got to design a D&D campaign for the summer. Um, speaking of D&D, we literally just rolled characters for our little mini campaign that's starting next week. Um, Mr. Mr. Toasty producer and I uh, and some others, we are continuing the journey of the Chaos Rat. Uh, we have decided to change it up a bit, and I have made the rat a artillerist. So the rat has guns. Um, which is good. My kind of rat. rats. Yeah, rats need guns. Uh, but yeah, um, that is that is pretty much it. What about you? What have you done this week, dog? Well, I didn't do anything as exciting as give a minority a gun. So that's that's fun. Good on you. The, the rat is definitely a minority in the world of D and D. I imagine. Um, but yeah, yeah. I'm the only rat. See, the only one. <laughs> Um, I worked, and that's boring and normal, and I've also watched a lot of Dora Hedora. Um, I'm almost done with Dora Hedora. Um, I love it just as much as I thought I would, because the manga was fun. Um, this is fun. I like seeing my lizardy boy and his beefcake of a woman go around and fight people. Um, that show is just really the thick and beautiful. That's all Dora, <laughs> Dora Hedora is. It's just like thick, beautiful people fighting each other. And it's wonderful. And there's lots of magic. So, yay. yeah. Um, I, uh, uh, I, I finished One Piece. Or not, fuck no, I didn't finish One Piece. Yeah, I was uh, going to say. <laughs> I, uh, I finished season one of Megalobox. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, that was fun. I, I like the ending. I don't want to, like, go into spoilers. Because maybe people haven't seen it or whatever. But... I thought it was good. It, it, you know, had some feels. It's and, fun. Yeah, I um, love it a lot. We're, I'm doing a rewatch soon with with um, La Calabacita or Jolene, whatever she wants to be called. I don't know. She's not here. I call her what I want right now. Then. Um, <laughs> but we're gonna do a rewatch of Megalobox because she hasn't. She's only seen like parts of it, and I've seen it all. And 
it's beautiful. And I got it on Blu-ray a while back because I no longer trust streaming services to have stuff on. Mm -hmm. so, Fair. So, yeah, no, I'm I just going around collecting like all these weird little anime that I want. Like I ordered Bartender today from my local anime store. So hopefully Bartender will be here in a, a few weeks. And that looks delightful. And I need to get like laid back camp soon. I want that because that's cute as shit. Like it's the best little girl show. Folks, if you haven't seen Layback Camp, it's the best little girl show. It's little girls in Japan literally camping on their own. It is delightful. It is not sexualized, which I love because I don't like fan service at all. I definitely don't like fan service with teenage girls. And more importantly, they're just going out, doing stuff together, hanging out and camping, and sending text messages about camping with their friends. That sounds fantastic. Joy. It really is. It's on Crunchyroll. Um, it's good. It's really good. It's one of the better slice of life. It and um, what was the one from a few years ago that I really like? Um, Joe? No, it was the one with the little girls going to Antarctica. And that was also really good. A Place Further Than the End of the World or something akin to that. That sounds interesting. It was really good. Like, it was another really good little girl plot. And what's bad, I like these slice-of-life little girl shows, like, when they're not, like, overly sexual. Okay, our, we've been informed that is a place further than the universe. And yeah, it's delightful. No, I, I will say, like, I, I, I am not a fan of uh, some of those tropes. Like, I know I mentioned this show earlier in the podcast, uh, not this episode, but in general, uh, Mix, the Meisei story, baseball anime, they decided to throw in a will-they-won't-they they incest arc. And it's like, yo, this is not, like, relevant whatsoever. Why are you doing this? I blame Pornhub. I blame Pornhub. And the Yakuza. Because they control Japanese pornography. Maybe. Still. I'm not really sure. Let's go on, though. Let's get into the real sucks. Otherwise, we'll just bullshit about anime. And this will become not G-dubs, but... The what have we watched? Why should you watch it? Animu podcast, and I'm sure those exist, and we're not one of them. So should do an episode about that, though. We should. We should probably also do an episode where we just bullshit, like for no reason about Animu. But this isn't the time. Nope. G dubs. Yep. We're moving on to our recap. I expect lots of questions, and I have lots of answers that may or may not make you happy. So our recap last week on America Ball Z, as we're referring to this, because why not? We met protagonist George, a devil of a man, owning plantations, owning people, rising in fame across his region and burgeoning nation. And he owns war crimes, too. Kind of fun. He's nowhere near being the father of his country, or is he anywhere near to redeeming himself in the eyes of history? And, yeah, that's where we'll pick up. <laughs> so, let's, let's transition. Let's go into the real thing. So, Forbes wanted to create a new path running just through Pennsylvania to Fort Duquesne. While George found that impractical and wanted to use an old path that had been used for a long time by Virginians that traveled through Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania to the Ohio River Valley Pittsburgh area. Washington lost this argument. He tried to use his weird politicking through his back room, like backstabbing and whispering about a guy doing something bad. But it failed miserably. And we can see through historical lens that Forbes was probably right. His path was technically shorter. And more importantly, the logistics of moving supplies made more sense through his route in Pennsylvania, which really that's how you win like conflicts is through supply lines and logistics. That's, I would say one of the biggest reasons historically why wars are won because who has the better logistics on their side? You can have everything else on your, the manpower, better technology, but you will still lose if logistics are not with you. The Germans in world war one are a great example of this. Now I'm getting into dumb weeds here. So, the first skirmish of this advance occurred on the 12th of November, 1758. And on the next day, 
the British marched into an abandoned Duquesne. The French had fled during the night of the first skirmish, but Washington did a shitty thing in anticipation of this advance. He had no idea the French were leaving, so to surprise them that they were that they were going to come in and not be alerted or anything, George m- ordered the murder of all the dogs within his unit. Which not the puppies? Yeah, they killed all the puppies because they were afraid the puppies would just start barking at other soldiers and you know raccoons and possums and shit because that's what pups do, even when they're well trained. So they killed them all. Man. Which is so depressing. I'm, I'm, I've added this to the war crime counter. Uh, I, I think you should. I, I think like we really need to make a comprehensive list of all the shitty things Georgie did because this is one of them. Little puppies were just it, being pups. It was. They were good boys and girls, and uh, this, is, were, this is awful. Yeah, yeah, not fun. None of this really mattered to George, though. As back in July, he was elected the House of Burgesses in his home state of Virginia there. He had ran before, but lost. This time, though, the Fairfax, Fairfax clan really hooked him up as they put booze out at the polls. And you get free booze if you voted for George. Pretty cool. This is absolutely true, too. This isn't like me fucking around. They really put booze out and were offering people who are voting like, hey, you can get a free drink from this keg if you just vote for our boy Washington. No big deal. Shortly after this um, endeavor to capture Pittsburgh, Washington left the Virginia regiment and would never again be involved with fighting for the British crown. So that's at least nice. That's a good thing, I think, for Washington. Like, fuck the crown. It's outdated and stupid. So let us recap, though, his military career at this point. He's been involved in four major battles. One battle was a massacre that he presided over as the acting officer. Another was a massacre that Washington survived. The third was a horrible defeat. And the fourth was a hollow victory. It's a military, folks, built on the finest of achievements. The American way. Officially, his resignation from the Virginia Regiment would hit on December of 1758. But don't feel bad for George. Because right after this, he would get married to Martha Dandridge Custis. On January 6th of 1759, she was one of the most eligible bachelorettes in all of Tidewater, Virginia. And marrying this woman propelled him to the tops of Tidewater society. <laughs> Such a fancy boy now. It's interesting to note, though, that we know very little of how George and Martha existed behind closed doors, how they felt about each other, or anything at all. Because after George's death, Martha burnt all but three letters that the, that the two had between each other. And apparently, from what I've read, the three letters that survived only survived because they got lost behind a, a shelf. Like, the shelf had somehow gotten these letters just stuck back there. And later historians, or not later, probably a later Washington just found them, were like, hey, I found these things. Oh, this is from Grandpa Papa George and Martha. So, that's kind of cool, actually. Like, you burn all this shit so people don't see, like, your personal heart and inside. And yet, much like life, it still finds a way to show later people. God damn it. That was so bad. Uh, I just want to... Um, you don't like my home. Jeff Goldblum? <laughs> no, I do. I respect Jeff Goldblum. But I feel like, you know, it was right there, man. That was a layup when you could have gone for a slam dunk. I still got two points, sir. <laughs> but you didn't get fouled on the way up, so no and one. That's true. No three uh, the hard way. What were exactly. you going to say? Though? Go on. <laughs> no, I, I just wanted to break the fourth wall a bit. Uh, that laugh that you have in the notes, it's ha, 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 ha. And uh, 
you know, I feel like you're uh, just uh, missing out on, um, you know, the truth there, dear listeners. I, I know. I really felt like at first it'd be like a Frenchman being like, ho, 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 ho. But I, I couldn't do that on command without thinking about it. So I just I just kept ad-libbing my notes. So Whoopsie You just crazy. have to, like, embody pompousness and arrogance. And I just, know. You know. And what's more pompous than a French aristocrat? Besides maybe an English aristocrat. I, mean, I don't know, but the Marquis de Lafayette is the only good one. I mean, yeah, and even that's, like, debatable. Well, no, actually, no. I know, knowing, doing this, I know a lot more about Lafayette, and he seemed like an okay guy. Yeah, no, he was a homie, man. Like, yeah. You know, anyway. thought, thought slaves were bad. Thought, you know, folks who weren't white were equal to him. Pretty nice guy. Yeah. Pretty nice Disliked guy. Disliked monarchies, you know. Yeah. No big Great deal. rapper. Excellent rapper. Like, holy shit. One of the best parts of that whole... Pl- We're going to come back to the, to Hamilton a lot in this, folks. And I know our producer's not going to appreciate it, but someone out there will. Because, come on. Come you know, on. The son I'm of a bitch is in this. Yeah. All I'm saying is it must be nice, you know, to have Washington by your side. I mean, yeah. I mean, on it must side. be nice. Yeah. I, but what did they expect? I mean, Washington was obviously, as we get on to this... He was obviously a federalist, and he just refused to join political parties publicly. Publicly. Let's let's go on though. Washington would soon after this inherit Mount Vernon in the year of seventeen sixty one. Apparently, I wrote in our notes nineteen sixty one. That almost threw me off, but nothing here happens in nineteen sixty one, folks. Absolutely nothing. Washington would inherit this because the death of his brother Lawrence's widow. And between nine, gosh damn it! See, I saw the nineteen. It threw it off. Between <laughs> 1761 and 1775, Washington grew Mount Vernon from 3,000 acres to 6,500 acres. So he more than doubled it, which is impressive and terrifying. Um, that's a, that's a lot of place to put owned people. Which is disgusting, but that's impressive that you got that much more land. He also, getting back to people, doubled the amount of slaves he owned, which is cool, I guess, for Washington. Not cool for those poor people. (sighs) Switching gears to Martha. We're going to talk about Martha. Martha had two children from her previous marriage. And as we know, together, her and George would have none. Probably because of smallpox made George infertile. Apparently, though, G-Dubs was a great dad. He really liked her kids, like, a lot. They And he was their dad. Like, absolutely was their dad. They became his children when they were something like three and six. I don't have it in the notes, but I'm pretty sure it's three and six or something around that age. So George was dad, which is kind of fun. For everything shitty, I do enjoy hearing about someone being a nice dad because so many dads in history are bad and scary and sometimes rapey. His stepdaughter, Patsy, was described as a wonderful child who George apparently loved and doted on, very much so, while his stepson, Jackie, seems to have been a pompous little punk, like a complete shithead who got kicked out of schools he caused trouble. He was basically a, a trust fund kid in the exact model of what you think a trust fund kid is. Unfortunately, though, both children would die young. Patsy in 1773 and Jackie in 1781. We'll talk about Patsy's death right now because I don't think I have any notes later um, just because she died so young. She died at 16 or 17 from epilepsy. She essentially had epilepsy. And one day just went into an epileptic fit. And the poor kiddo just fucking died in the yard. Like, not fun. Not good at all. We'll talk about Jackie's death that more is, in depth later. But That is horrible. Yeah, it's pretty horrible. Like, not fun. Not fun at all. They, I don't know. She sounded like a nice little kid from reading it, from reading a lot and every time they talk about her. And it's just, just sad. So back to Mount Vernon. Not depressing in that in that regard. No dead children now. In Mount Vernon at this time, Lund Washington was a cousin 
of Georgia's who would in 1765 be placed in managerial duties and be Georgia's right-hand man at home. And this would just go on for the unseeable future. Lund was apparently a very big part of Georgia's life from a distance. George was very involved, though, with the managing, so it wasn't like Lund was doing everything on his own. Um, with everything documented, he meticulously like took care of everything. And he had a real fascination for documenting his slaves, which is strange, but I guess m- makes sense because, as we know, George is a very economical-thinking man. And he probably thought the more information I have about all these people I own, the better for my my pocketbook, something like that. And this is good for historians. I still think it's kind of creepy, though, just from a personal stance. Like, why, George? Uh, you creepy sometimes, boy. Interestingly enough, though, we know he sold off slaves only when they ran off more than one time. He was very big on not selling the people that he owned. Um, this isn't a usual Southern thing. Usually these folks would just sell off people for no fucking reason. It'd basically be like, oh yeah, Johnson asked for, if I'd sell him Atlas, I sold him Atlas because he gave me a good price. George didn't do shit like that. Um, the big reason is he wouldn't sell, sell people without their consent if it broke up their families. And... By this time, a lot of these people had established family units and they had mingled family units between the folks that George owned, the folks that Martha Washington's estate owned, and they'd also mingled with neighboring like peoples. So it was like a weird hodgepodge community and George didn't feel comfortable for whatever weird reason. Of ruining that. I think this is a good thing. But I don't like thinking of it as a good thing. In the context of fucking people who are owned by a dude. Yeah. No. Owning people. Bad. I don't know what to say about this. All I know is this is probably why so many like. Fucking people in your life have told you. Well not all slaves were treated badly. And blah blah blah. Because. George tried, quote-unquote. I don't like it. He seems to be a bit better in context to other people that were around him in his society. But fuck, man. Fuck. Why? Yeah. It's, it's all bad. He, let's go on, though. He was also very obsessive about, about the slaves that he owned, and would do things such as have a doctor on staff and have like doctors all the time come look at folks. Anything they complain about, doctor would show up. So he kept care of folks, but it's very much akin to just calling the vet the second something's wrong of a critter. And so it's still really fucked up because it's all in his own pocketbook interest. <sighs> Moving on again. A few of the folks that he owned had greater freedoms than others. For instance, for a few examples, Billy Lee, who is his personal assistant servant, had much more like freedom and ability to do things than others. Some man who they only call Mulatto Jack, um, he was essentially the third man in charge of Mount Vernon, and he managed minor business transactions. So it's like being, I guess he must have been the assistant manager of the place. But still, he still treated most people like cattle, which is what it is. And they might have been like treating folks like, or treating Wagyu as more precious cows than others, but he still acted like folks were cows, which is fucked. I really don't like how looking at historical America like this, that every time you look at it, it's like, oh, everyone owns people. Great. Everything is built on people. Like, fuck all these people. And it, it's it's just annoying. Like, fuck all your ancestors. Fuck my ancestors. They owned people. I hope a lot of them died in slave revolts. He was uncustomary. Washington was uncustomary. In his conduct of business, um, as we've already discussed a little bit for Tidewater Elite, 
And it's probably due to the fact that he was so fucking poor after his father died since everything went to Lawrence and nothing went to his mother. So his mother had no money, just a tiny farm. All her children, like George and the other slew of them, had no money. And so George did things like he often haggled, which would piss people off. It's very unlike most Tidewater elite when he did haggling or he would do things like call out folks like tradesmen and merchants whenever they fucked him or shorted him over. Very untidewater. People did not like it. It was seen as very ungentlemanly, but George cared about making stacks because fat stacks, that's what matters to Washington. He was also odd as he would personally view any failure as a conspiracy against him as opposed to random shit happening or personal fuck-ups. And we see this from, like, letters and people talking about George, is that anytime something would go wrong, he would just start ranting, it's a conspiracy against me. He was essentially your uncle at the Thanksgiving table, just throwing a fucking fit whenever a business deal fell through. I didn't get the contract with the Hilton. It's a fucking conspiracy against me. That kind of shit. Outside of running his own business, George also had to deal with Martha's third of her family's plantations. Plural. Family's plantations. He had to deal with a third of that. That was part of that was all wrapped up in her Dowager estate, which was a Virginian legal term, which is very confusing. I kind of don't get it, but I get it. It was an estate that Martha technically owned, but she was kind of stewarding over it for her eventual heirs and children and grandchildren. It causes so many problems for George, and I imagine was a annoyance for more people than just him. But we'll get into that later. The estates of Martha mostly dealt in tobacco, and due to their volume... They they introduced George into direct contact with London merchants. See, most planners in the Tidewater and Virginia in general um, used localized merchants, like people from Richmond and people from wherever the fuck in Maryland and other, you know, East Coast Virginian area merchants. But if you produced a large enough volume you could use a much more lucrative London-based merchant system. And Martha's money was no fucking joke. Her first husband was loaded. These connections allowed Washington direct access to really nice fucking goods from London. You know, the motherland. For example, after his marriage, in an average year, Washington would use these connections to order 300 pounds sterling of goods through the merchants at specifically Carey and Company. 300 pounds. That's a fuck ton of money just to be sent over willy-nilly to London and be like, oh, yes, we need that rocking horse or those new shoes. Those look fine and dandy. Bring them to me, Carey and Company. This worked well for the Washingtons until 1764 when Carey and Company informed George that he had on his account more than... 1,800 pounds of debt. This was really common. So one of the big downfalls of all the Tidewater and plantation elites, and part of the reason they were such assholes in American history in dealing with politics, was because they were all going broke in massive amounts of debt due to dealing with British merchants. I personally believe that might be part of the reason why so many of these Virginians were all were all for breaking from the crown because they felt like they were getting fucked by Londoners all the time from dealing with these dudes who were shipping goods back and forth. G-dubs, though, went from accepting these bad markets and shitty weather that usually would, quote-unquote, screw them out of profits to questioning the tobacco market and questioning the Carey and company. Furthermore, he concluded that he was sold the shittier goods from London, and the Carey and company would benefit from this and pocket the change. Washington believed that the merchant class was against the colonist, 
and perhaps being involved with the empire was economically bad for the colonies. Washington, though, was wrong about the market. It was shit. So the Spanish had been flooding um, the tobacco market with cheap tobacco. Which is funny because this is, well, I think it's funny because this is actually very similar to what would happen later when the shithead Confederacy started getting economically fucked by cotton during the Civil War. Because much like their ancestors in Virginia and the Tidewater, these assholes in Dixie fed on a cash crop. Which the cash crop became oversaturated and failed and it fucked them economically because the Egyptians were flooding so much in the market in the 1800s. I could rant a lot, lo- a lot longer about this. I know more about this than I should, but we're not going to. We're going to go on. Maybe I'll talk about that one day in the future. If you want to hear that, write us. Send us an email. We want feedback. Now, in Washington's defense, though, the mercantile class was using colonists to balance their own leisures. They'd sell them shitty goods, and they would skim the profits back to make up for bad business back in London and the rest of England. Um, This skewed their risk as merchants and the risk of the market towards the planters back in Virginia, leaving these assholes who back in London to be rich and very, very content. So I I guess I can't blame the man in this regard. I mean, it looked like you were getting fucked and you were kind of getting fucked. So good on you for calling it out, even if everyone else thought that was weird and ungentlemanly. So moving on in time. We're going to go back to politics. In 1763, George III, the big bad villain of our future conflict, proclaimed that everything west of the Appalachians to the Mississippi were to be an Indian reservation. This would piss so many people off. The proclamation of 1763 just pissed off so many Americans. It's probably And it's probably one of the first steps to putting American colonists in the idea of we don't want to be British anymore. George openly ignored this proclamation, though, because no king could stop the reality of colonial settlement, damn it. He's way over there. And so Washington and many of his fellow Americans, they acted like this was a joke. And the natives who were there, living there, the reason why this proclamation was made, you know, they were just an obstacle in the way of American expansion. But by 1765, we see that Washington is now adding more to his grumpiness, and he's getting unhappy with paying taxes to Britain, and begins to complain very vocally when the implementation of the Stamp Act occurs. And so by the next year of 66, G-Dubs, due to things such as taxing and the Stamp Act and profitability, has abandoned tobacco. No more tobacco. It's costing me more money. He was one of the first major planters in Tidewater to, to abandon it. George would have mills constructed and would shift his production to wheat and flour. And he built a small fleet of schooners for commercial fishing on the Potomac. By diversifying his money, he would slowly cut off Carrion Company with his final transaction with them being in 1774, which is interesting to see that this man is so economically driven that he's going to completely abandon his standardized norms and go to only trading locally or as much as possible, no longer dealing with the big markets, deal with the small market at home, see if I can make all my money that way. And it seems like it worked for him. We'll go back, though, a bit to 1763. We're going to see here that this is one of the big whoopsie date, or the beginning of one of the big, like, fuck yous that George did. In 1763, he helped the creation of the Mississippi Land Company in order to create a new feudal colony for the crown. This was rejected by the crown in 1765. Yet, an English-backed colony in by the company Vandalia was approved for a similar range and area. Washington saw this as the British fucking Americans for the English interest once again, and would continue to fixate over this land for quite a long time. He really loved the idea of the Ohio River Valley, which is essentially the area of, like, Ohio, eastern Ohio and western Pennsylvania and parts of, like, West Virginia. He, like, fixated on that shit. And that's going to come back a few times within this story about him. So back to the French and Indian War. Virginia is stretching from coast to coast, in theory, 
you know, kind of like Space Ghost. Motherfuckers coast to coast. And Governor Dinwiddie signed an order allotting 200,000 acres east of the Ohio River for Virginian veterans. 5,000 acres to each former officer, which, are you following? Former officer, that's George. The location of the land was never made clear. It's just out west of that river somewhere. Washington organized veterans to go to this land and settle it or claim it bordering the Ohio and Great Kanawha rivers. This would now be located in southwestern Pennsylvania and southeastern Ohio and parts of northwest Virginia. Northwest West Virginia. Northwest West Virginia, folks. That is a fun and awful thing to say together. Northwest West Virginia. In the fall of 1770, G-Dubs personally made his way out west to survey this area. And in 1771, he commissioned William Cropper to complete his survey. Because, as we all forgot, George was actually a surveyor. That was his first job. I think he learned it from Lawrence. It's not really entirely played out. I kind of, like, stated everywhere. I probably overread it one time, but I'm pretty sure that it was because of Lawrence. You should know this, though. Yeah, I know, because I've done some surveying, um, and uh, I know that the vast majority of the, like, the founding fathers and early presidents were surveyors, uh, so that's actually, like, super interesting. Um, it's definitely, like, a fun connection, but mad respect to early surveyors, because that shit is brutal. It, it's it's hard enough as is, like, with normal technology, which we use satellites now, but, like, they were literally using chains and rods and like, God damn. I know. Gosh, could you imagine have to do like the meters and the rods and the chains through like swampy, shitty river Valley land. That was good for rice. And <laughs> yeah, well, I know that, um, there are still like surveyors who like retrace, uh, some like historical routes, uh, the old fashioned way and like hats off to those folks. Huh? Good lord, like, I mean, I remember fighting through the woods with a, like, freaking machete, and, like, so, so different today. Man, I I didn't realize there were still dudes, like, doing that as historical. Of course there are, because people do historical everything, but I just never crossed my mind there are people out there. Well, like, my old um, survey boss, may he rest in peace, uh, he found, like, a marker from Lewis and Clark. That's awesome. Like, that's really, really fucking cool, man. Yeah, no, it's super cool. Like, if, if, if you're a history nerd, like, that's super cool. Anyway. Well, let's go on to our, to our wonderful story of George doing bad things. Washington, after doing and completing the survey, purchased 10 servants. When I say servants, I mean white men. Because you could, you could do that. Before the revolution, you could purchase white people. It was usually under contract for a certain amount of time. It's really weird. That's where you get indentured servants. That's also where you get some shitty white people saying, well, white people were slave too. No, they weren't the same. They were purchased servants. It's fucking weird. I don't know why this happened either. But these 10 servants were purchased to... Go to the surveyed land and occupy choice land for George. And fun fact, some of these men were prisoners that had been released from prisons in Baltimore. So I think that's a fun fact. And Washington used these men to claim for himself 20,000 acres, which is a mind-bogglingly big area. Like 20,000 acres is huge. Huge. Like, I personally own something like 30. And I can imagine, like, almost so many more times than that. I was going to say almost 10 times, but it's way more than that. But 20,000 is just mind boggling. Going on. Other veterans quickly understood, though, that George had gamed the system. And they called him out publicly. He got called out in 
papers. He got called out in the House of Burgess. Um, people shit on him for this. Like, Virginians shit on George for this. And he would obviously deny this. But later in life would admit that, yep, I totally did that. I totally fucked the system and stole land from my government. Pretty fun. Pretty American, I guess, stealing land, even if it's from your own government and fucked over people. Privately, though, he would say that he felt he deserved it. And if people kept pressing him about this land, he would blow up. Every time it was brought up, brought it up, he would blow up, sort of accusing them of being a shithead to him and saying that I deserve this. It's my goddamn land. I worked hard for it. His integrity couldn't be questioned at all. And furthermore, while Washington was shitty, he was in line of other Virginian planners who were also aggressive. He was just more aggressive in land acquisition and much more successful than the average Virginian Tidewater shithead. We'll move on to the next enragement of Mr. Washington and other colonists, which is the Townsend Act of 1768. These were four laws which were passed which taxed luxury goods. And this was probably the final straw in the series of events for George. Um, And because by 1769 and a year of this shit, He was openly using revolutionary language in person and letters against the crown. And that's the way it seems to be for a lot of these gentlemen, is that this, the the Townshed Act, was the final straw for them, where they were like, yeah, I don't think we need these assholes in London anymore. I don't know how we get rid of them, but we don't need them. He was calling frequently for the end of buying goods. He would do it in the legislative house. Because the boycott sometimes works. And on May 18th of 1769, he officially proposed a ban to the House of Burgess for English manufacturer goods throughout the colony of Virginia. Over the next five years, the uh, British revoked all these taxes except the one placed on tea, which is interesting. I don't know why tea was such a sticking point for these people, except they must have sold a shit ton of it. And everyone must have loved it. This would accumulate in the Boston Tea Party, though, as we all know, which would in turn provoke the Intolerable Acts of 1774. And George saw these personally as acts which not only punished Americans in Boston, but were a conspiracy against American liberty as a whole. Here's a direct quote, which is fucked. Colonies stand together or be tame and object slaves like blacks. God damn it. What a dickhead. So one of the nice things about George is he never uses the normal slurs that you would expect these people to use. Which makes me kind of think that is a later thing and a thing that has been blown out of proportion by people like Tarantino. I, I don't like any of this. That is a terrible quote, and I put it in there to make me mad and hopefully to make other people out there in the world mad because it's a fucking shitty quote. I do not like it. Like, God damn it. To me, it just even reading it implicates that George, like, knew what he was doing owning people was wrong, but did anyway because they were all shitheads. Their culture was shitty, and they were shitty. But Washington was most likely fully radicalized by fellow Virginian planter George Mason. He was the most active and astute political mind slash aristocrat in the region. Because let us not forget that most Virginian founding fathers were aristocratic fucking fat cats, like most of them. Mason introduced to George the idea of the Whig ideology. This ideology essentially was early republicanism. Divine rule was bad. There were, of course, more variations of it than this. But this is the context we need. It came over from Britain against the king, and it was transplanted in the States. Washington knew that he was bad, though, at political thought and history and philosophical theory. So he took everything that people like Mason told him to heart, and it was easy for George to identify with Whig ideology, especially as he saw the colonies already being fucked by the British crown and empire. Let's picture this. It's 17... 74. George is finally entering 
entering national politics from localized politics. He was he's been elected to the new continental congressional delegation where they are discussing what to do about the British. This would be held in Philly and George would go with the rest of his delegation, arrive and immediately start doing interesting shopping. He would purchase new tailored uniforms, military. He would shop for muskets. He would order military strategy books. We can see that he's laying like weird groundwork here that is obviously hostile. But life went back to normal after his short and less and less productive meeting. Yet in the spring of 1775, George was called to lead the Virginia militia and voted to attend a second Continental Congress. Things are getting spicy here. Washington had personally believed that war was inevitable since the Intolerable Acts and that troop occupation of Boston the previous year was a no-go. And once again, during the Continental Congress, George purchased more military items, musket accessories, tomahawks, boots, yada, yada, yada. Finally, all of his military fetishization, though, paid off as Washington was appointed the military leader of the colonies. This is probably due to his reputation as a military man and the need to tie Virginia, the richest and most, the most populated and most conservative colony, to the radical New England. John Adams, though, at least joked that it was because George was the tallest guy in the room. And as a tall man, I like this. I like to think it was because he's the tallest son of a bitch in the room. <laughs> um, in fact, though, his only real competition to running the military was Charles Lee. Lee had also served in the British Army, and he was also a Virginian. His credentials, though, seemed way better, actually, um, as he had just come back in 1773 from fighting in Europe with the Polish-Lithuanian military. Lee, though, most likely did not get the job due to his immediate declaration of needing compensation, which George did not request and, frankly, flat out said, do not pay me for this position. Lee had a very poor presentation as well, as opposed to the flamboyantly fabulous George and his wonderful clothes and well-keptness. Charles also had quite a foul and colorful language, um, which is fun. And he also had a very creepy relationship with his Pomeranian, which people actually wrote about. They did not enjoy how he acted to his Pomeranian, which makes me uncomfortable to think about. Privately, Charles believed it was the fact that George was born in Virginia while Charles had been born back in bloody old England. Anywho, Washington was appointed the military leader, the jefe, so to speak, on June 16th. We know that he must have had some foresight as he wore his Virginian blues the whole congressional meeting and gave lectures on military matters. His diary and letters, though, showed that he didn't feel qualified to have the position and didn't trust his abilities to lead, probably because he was fucking awful in the French and Indian Wars. He did mostly lose and commit war crimes in his career, so, you know, like I said... And he thought, too, if the revolt failed, he had already planned to flee to the Ohio River Valley. Because, you know, you always need a Mexico to run to when you're going to do crimes against your state. Mexico, folks. So, fun fact. In 1772, a case in the British Court of the King, which sounds so fancy, the Somerset versus Stuart ruled that chattel slavery was neither supported nor authorized in England nor Wells by any law. Southerners worried about this case, and I personally think it may have accelerated the war slash revolt among them. The idea that we have to get out because in Britain they're talking about getting rid of this thing that makes us money that is morally ir irresponsible and wrong. George, though, back to him, was 43 when he left for the war, and he would be 51 by the time it was done. He spent the entire war in the field, except on a stopover to Mount Vernon in 1781 en route to Yorktown and on occasion when running back to Continental Congress in Philly to discuss or petition something. Washington would not return home to stay until the Christmas of 1783. By that time, George would have had a hand in destroying two British armies and arguably the first attempt at British Empire. Fun fact, though, George lost more battles than any modern victorious leader. Usually these were due to his own aggression and stupidity. <laughs> this fucking asshat ran purely on spite and a beautiful hatred of the aristocratic empires. 
the only, that's one of the few things I do like about George. Pure spite. And today, folks, I think this is where we're ending. Because if we go on any further, I will keep ranting and ranting about this. And I'm sure both my co-host and producer will hunt me down and knife me. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, why why lie to our beautiful listeners? Like, they deserve the truth. Yeah, they do. And the truth is, if I keep going on, I'm going to get stabbed. You guys may forget about it shortly, but eventually it'll come back. And we'll be sitting around when COVID's done. And I'll just feel something warm go down my side. And I'll see a knife. And I'll see someone's hand that's not mine on a knife with blood everywhere. And I'll know why. It was because of George. That's nice. exactly it. Yeah. So I guess let's wrap this up. Um, I've been whiskey this week. And before I get on with my stuff, I'd like to thank our wonderful friend, Singe Waverin, for designing our logo. Uh, we have neglected to do this a lot. And we are sorry. We are no longer going to neglect this. You should look the man up. I believe he is on Facebook. And I also believe the man has a website that is linked from his Facebook I don't know because I no longer can use Facebook, but you may be able to know, folks. Um, but I've been Whiskey, and you can follow me at Whiskey is a Devil at Twitter. And this is my co-host. Yeah, I am Bravo. You can find me at, at not Bravo Delta on Twitter. You can find the show at, at Yo What the Hell PD on Twitter. Uh, you can email us at yo what the hell pot at gmail.com. Uh, and I have been recording this on land that belonged to the Ute, uh, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, and the Sioux out here in Denver, Colorado. And on that note, I have been recording this on land that I belong to the Kickapoo, the Kiowa, the Wichita in Norman, Oklahoma. And thank you for listening and Via con Dios. Have a good one, folks. Ciao.